What is the best gift you've ever received? If you think back over the years, through birthdays, Christmases, and other milestones, when others have given you gifts, what has been the best gift? What stands out for you? Now think about why. Why was it the best gift? What made it the best gift? The thoughtfulness of the person who you knew, knew you well enough, who thought long enough, who searched hard enough to get it. Maybe the gift itself, its effect on your life, the fact that it was given at just the right time, perhaps that its effect lasted well beyond expectation. What's the best gift you've ever received? We will undoubtedly be thinking about this as we continue with our Christmas traditions this week. This morning I wanted to take some time to think about what I would argue is the best that God has ever given, the best gift that God has ever given humanity. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Certainly there's no greater, more perfect gift that God has given than the word. The world today does not recognize the word of God as the word of God. They do not see it as a good and perfect gift from above. They see it maybe as an ancient collection of myths and fables. Perhaps they would agree that the Bible has some good moral teaching as long as it doesn't offend our politically correct sensibilities. Yet the word of God is so much more than that. It is his revelation. God is revealing himself through his word. It is the unveiling of his person, his work, his will. It is in the providence of God, as I've mentioned already, his mercy granted to sinful humanity to not leave them ignorant in their sin, facing his impending judgment, not to leave them in open rebellion against him, but rather to reach down, to condescend, to communicate himself, his righteous standards and his expectations. And God being God, being the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, the omnipotent one, the sovereign ruler and king of creation would otherwise be unknowable to us, inaccessible, if not for his word. His word communicates, his word creates, his word reconciles, his word redeems, his word empowers. The word of God is truly the gift that keeps on giving. Our text for this morning is Psalm 119. So you can go ahead and uh, start turning there. So you have your Bibles ready. Earlier this year, I taught a Sunday school class on how to study the Bible. In that class, we discussed the Psalms in particular. And personally, I took the opportunity to study through Psalm 119 using our study methods. The sermon is going to make use of a lot of the time that I spent in the Psalm at that time, working through all 176 verses. So we're going to be here for a while. I hope you guys don't mind. Um, (laughs) I'm kidding about that. (laughs) Psalm 119 is one long meditation on the word of God. I would love to simply read all of it to you this morning. I think that would be helpful. But um, again, we we don't have the time for that. What I do hope to do is give you a sampling of the various ways in which the psalm writer muses on the word of God as the treasure that it is. And in doing so, I hope to encourage you as we come to the close of this year, as we look forward to the next, to view the word of God yourselves as a treasure and to avail yourselves of it. Now, this is not a message on prayer, but Psalm 119 is essentially a prayer in response to the word of God. In summary, the writer of Psalm 119 earnestly prays in response to the word of God in this way, and this is just my summary of Psalm 119. 
He says, God, help me to persist in seeking the treasure of your word as it exposes humanity to your perfections, bringing both blessing and judgment to those who hear. That's the message of Psalm 119. As you pull all the verses together, you categorize them, you put them together according to theme. That's what he's saying, essentially. He's praying in response to God's word. He's saying, God, help me to persist in seeking your word. Help me to stay close to your word. I know that it brings blessing. I know that it brings judgment. But that's what we need. Uh, We need to see you more clearly, and we see you clearly through your word. Help me to persist in seeking the treasure of your word as it exposes humanity to your perfections, bringing both blessing and judgment to those who hear. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we do thank you for this morning once again and to come before you in prayer and ask that you would help us as we look at various sections of Psalm 119 and try to understand its message. Help us to respond well to it. As your word says, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the author of Psalm 119 is unknown. We don't have an inscription for it. It's often attributed to David, uh, just because all of the psalms are generally attributed to David. It does also mimic the message of Psalm 19. I like the idea of attributing it to David or to a Davidic king. Um, According to the law, it was commanded of the king to both have a copy of God's word himself and to be devoted to reading it. Imagine the kings of our day being required to have a copy of God's law and to read it themselves daily. Imagine that. Our president. Psalm 119 is written as an acrostic with the first letter of each section beginning with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, essentially praising God from A to Z. And there are eight verses per section of this acrostic. One author commented that the acrostic was a feature that was used to aid in memorization. Uh, It is clear that the focus in Psalm 119 is the word of God. He refers to it as instruction, using the Hebrew word Torah. Typically when we hear the Torah, we are using it in reference to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first giving of the law of God written by Moses. But this word can be used generally to, to refer to the instruction of God. Other terms that are used synonymously with the word of God in Psalm 119, the word decree, God's decrees, the word ordinance, what God has ordained, statute, simply the word word, uh, his commandments, his precepts, and also his promises. All of those are different ways of talking about the word of God, and they all kind of bring a a different aspect of God's word to the fore. It is said that Psalm 119 was recited at the Feast of Pentecost, the spring festival observed 50 days after the Passover, and that celebrates the giving of the Torah to Moses at Sinai. One author describes Psalm 119 in this way, and this is a quote. The general scope and design of it is to magnify the law and make it honorable, to set forth the excellency and usefulness of divine revelation And to recommend it to us, not only for our entertainment, but for the government of ourselves by the psalmist's own example, who speaks by experience of the benefit of it and of the good impressions made upon him by it, for which he praises God and earnestly prays from first to last for the continuance of God's grace with him, to direct and quicken him in the way of his duty, end quote. I like that. 
But again, my summary message of Psalm 119, God, help me to persist in seeking the treasure of your word as it exposes humanity to your perfections, bringing both blessing and judgment to those who hear. I'll give you four descriptions of this prayer if you want to write these down for your outline. In response to the word of God, Psalm 119 is a prayer of dependence. It is a prayer of delight. It is a prayer of devotion. And finally, it is a prayer of distinction. Yes, they are all beginning with D. Makes it a little bit easier to remember. A prayer of dependence, delight, devotion, and distinction. Now, I'll encourage you to follow along. We are going to be hitting a number of different verses. You can open up to Psalm 119. Um, I'll probably give you a leading verse as we go through, so one to just kind of center our thoughts, and I'll give you some additional supporting verses because, again, there's a lot in Psalm 119. We won't be able to cover all of it, but this is just kind of an overview for you to get a taste, and I hope it does give you a taste and encourage you to keep reading. Well, first, again, Psalm 119 is a prayer of dependence. Looking first at Psalm 119, verse 12. And from here on, I'll just give you the verse number. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Now, much can be said from that verse alone. God alone is blessed. He alone is worthy of praise, adoration, of honor above all. And because he is worthy of such blessing, we ought to be falling over ourselves to hear his word. We ought to be craning our necks to hear his voice. We ought to desire with all of our hearts to know what he has to say. We follow people on social media because we think they're going to have something good to say, right? We look, for their, we look for their tweets. We look for their Instagram posts. We look for their YouTube videos, and we like those things. Well, when was the last time you read your Bible and thought, man, that is really good? And you put a little like comment beside it. That might be a little silly, but maybe you, maybe you just outline, you underline it or you highlight it, right? The psalmist says, When I hear God's word, when I'm exposed to God's word, all I want to do is hear more. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. He repeats the same phrase in verse 26, 33, 64, and 68. Teach me your statutes. I want to know what you have to say. I need to know what you have to say, and I need for you to explain it to to me. Help me. This is a prayer of dependence. Listen to it in another way. He says in verse 35, Lead me in the path of your commandments. In verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law. Verse 73, listen if you can't keep up, it's okay. Just listen. Your hands have fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn of your commandments. Verse 125, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Do you hear the request in those verses? God, I want to know you better. I want to know your word better, and I need you to help me. I like this one best. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Isn't that beautiful? That's a verse that you can take with you and you can use anytime you sit down to read God's word. Anytime you come before God's word, God, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word. Perhaps you sit down before the word of God and sometimes it reads like Ikea furniture instructions. Can't make heads or tail of it. 
Maybe you just don't know where to start. Well, this is where you start. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Your hands have fashioned me. Give me understanding. Open my eyes and I may behold wonderful things from your word. That's where you start. God, you know me. You made me. Help me to understand your word, your truth. This is a prayer of dependence. It's a prayer of dependence because we struggle with persisting and seeking the word of God. Perhaps you sit down before the word of God and you're just so easily distracted. You start to read, but you can't finish. Your mind races. You're thinking about all the things you did this past week, all the things you need to do next week. Somebody calls you or texts you. A bug skitters across the floor. Maybe a kid calls out to you or starts tugging on your, uh, your, your, your leg. But you're not able to focus. You want to get into the word of God. You just can't. You, see, you feel so distracted. And you know what? Our lack of ability to focus on God's word leads to a lack of ability to follow God's word. So we need his help. I like verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Again, this is the psalmist sitting before the word of God, feasting on the word of God and thinking, I need your help. And particularly, I need your help to keep from looking at worthless things. Now, that's not necessarily a comment on the quality of the other thing. The other thing might be worthy. Again, I gave the example of a kid tugging on your leg, right? We're not calling kids worthless, obviously. But in comparison, anything else is worth less than the word of God. Because the word of God is so crucial for our lives. He says, help me to turn away from worthless things. That's a prayer. Perhaps it's not just things in general. Perhaps it's sin. Some sin that particularly captivates you and takes your attention away from the word of God. Some desire, some fleshly impulse, some weight that so easily entangles you. He says in verse 29, put false ways far away from me and graciously teach me your law. I can't do it on your own. I need your help. Help me to put those false ways away from me so that I can learn your word. Verse 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity have dominion over me. How's that for a prayer? God, help me to keep steady according to your word and don't let iniquity, don't let sin have dominion over me. Now we know that ultimately in Christ, Sin cannot reign over us because we're dead to sin. Paul makes that argument in Romans chapter 6. And yet sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels that we're just weighed down by sin. We're struggling. We can't seem to figure a way out of it. The psalm writer says the way out of it is God's word. And it says we come before God's word and we're exposed to God's word, his perfections. And we plead with God, God, help me so that sin doesn't have dominion over me. Perhaps it's not sin, but perhaps it's just some trial that's weighing you down, making it difficult for you to persist in seeking his word. We see a repeated refrain in the Psalms and a lot of David's writings of his complaints against the wicked, those who are constantly at war with him, bringing accusations against him, striving against him, causing him and at times all the people of God to despair. That's certainly the context of some of the verses that we see in Psalm 119, verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me. 
Verse 150, they draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. He's talking about people who are persecuting him. And while persecution from the wicked was clearly the context, I want you to see that there are a number of principles drawn from his response that can be applied to any trial, any distress. It could be sickness. Again, it could be the loss of a loved one that's weighing heavily on you some interpersonal relationship issue, the loss of a job, whatever it might be, here are some principles that we can derive from this psalm to remember in times of trial. He says in verse 86, All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood, but help me. Again, the context is clearly persecution from someone in his life. It is unwarranted persecution. It's troublesome and disheartening, so much so that he knows he cannot help himself. He reaches out. He cries out with help to help from the Lord. But notice what he does first in that verse. He first affirms the goodness of God. All your commandments are sure. He is being persecuted falsely, so he was likely doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but being spoken of by someone else as evil. Has that ever happened to you? Someone falsely accuse you? You're trying to do what's right, but they're falsely accusing you of evil? We should be striving to live a life that is above reproach, though sometimes we will fall short. Certainly we shouldn't be able to be accused by doing evil by anyone. We should be striving to live that above reproach kind of life. But he is doing what is right according to the law of God, but is being falsely accused. The temptation at times like that is to be like Job's wife who said, curse God and die. It's to accuse God. How could God let this happen to me? Woe is me. But instead, what he does is he first affirms the goodness of God. He affirms the goodness of God's word, the goodness of God's commands. Even though I'm being falsely accused for following your word, I know that your word is right. I know that it is true. I know that it is good. And that's good for us to remember in the midst of trial or difficulty. We need to look for ways to affirm the goodness of God. Additionally, we want to make sure that we remind ourselves that we belong to God. He says here, and I don't actually have the reference to this one, so you guys can search for it later if you want. No, I'll give it to you later. Um, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. I think we forget this often as we're going through difficult times, as we're going through trials. We forget that we belong to God. We forget that we're his. Perhaps we forget that we belong to the Lord because we're saturated with this earthly reality. We live life long here, and the difficulties of this life weigh us down and cause us to forget that there is something greater that we're made for. The Word of God reminds us that we're pilgrims, we're aliens in this life, precisely so that we remember that our true home, our true country, our true citizenship is where? It's in heaven. It's not here. The word of God reminds us of that. We belong to God. Perhaps we forget that we belong to God because we think deep down inside that God's love will fail us. Perhaps we've sinned or we just think that we're just not worth it. And so we get discouraged. Well, the truth is that we're not worth it. The Bible isn't about self-help or good vibes. The word of God is very clear about our status before him. We are sinners. I love one of my professors um, from old, one of my mentors. He used to refer to us as dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. 
I love that. It is a very adequate and a very thorough explanation of who we are. We're dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. That's what we are before God. We are worthless. We deserve his judgment, nothing more. We need to understand that, and we need to be okay with that. The reality is that Christ didn't die because we're worth it. The word of God reminds us that Christ died because he is good and because he does good. Again, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone, not as a result of our goodness. These are, again, some principles that we can remember when we suffer and we're tempted to look away from God's word. I'll give you one more. Psalm uh, uh, verse 147, he says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Remember, again, this is a prayer of dependence. Do you hear the sense of dependence in that verse? I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. When we feel our worst, our spiritual disciplines tend to suffer. We don't read the word, we don't pray, we don't pursue fellowship with other believers, we become inward focused and detached, and that's precisely why we continue to fail. The example that we see here is persistent seeking. He knows that he is in trouble. He knows that he has nowhere else to go. He says, I rise up before dawn, before the sun rises, and I cry out to help from the Lord. I'm pleading with God to help. When have you ever been that desperate? When have you ever sensed that great sense of need? The example here is that we must do whatever we need to do to pursue and cling to the promises of God. We cannot live life on our own. We certainly cannot know the true and living God apart from his work, his help. The psalm writer's example here as he sits before God's word, reads it and meditates on it, His response is, God, I need you. I need you to help me to understand your word. I need you to help me to persist in seeking your word. I need you to help me to to cling to your word, your promises, your truth. Again, it's a prayer of dependence. It's also a prayer filled with delight. It's going to be our second point. The word of God is a treasure to him. I've already read one of my favorite verses. Again, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. That's verse 18. Again, his assumption is that there are wonderful things in the law of God. That's his assumption. There are wonderful things there. And I pray, God, that you'd help me to see them. His desire is that God would open his eyes to see those wonderful things. I was talking to one of my girls the other day about a book she was reading, and she was commenting that she likes to read books that you can't put down. You ever read a book like that? It's just so interesting, you can't put it down. It's so intriguing to you, you just just don't want to put it down. You want to keep reading. Well, the psalm writer says that, you know what? God's word is that for me. God's word is so wonderful, it's so delightful, I just can't put it down. There are so many wonderful things there. He says, in other words, this way, verse 47, I find delight in your commandments, which I love. He says in verse 72, the law is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He says in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you hear that sense of delight? Two things we tend to treasure the most, right? Our food and our money. 
In his eyes, the word of God is more delightful than either one of those. In fact, he says in verse 171, my lips will pour forth praise to you. And in verse 172, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. This is delight. The word of God is delightful to him. This is someone sitting before a delightful meal. I don't know, perhaps a four-year-old who likes to announce to everyone in the room when they have something really good and it's really tasty. Mmm, um, this is really good. You know, one of those kind of deals. They enjoy it so much they're almost singing about how good it is. Sometimes they actually are singing. Well, that's his response to the word of God. I pray for that kind of response in my own soul. God, help me to delight in your word. Your word is good. Help me to see that it is good. He says, the Lord is my portion in verse 57. He says in verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage for me. They are the joy of my heart. We are so easily pleased with the satisfaction of our physical appetites and our spiritual appetites are so easily diminished. But he says, the Lord is my portion. He says, he is my heritage. When they start talking about a portion and a heritage, this is, um, this is giving you the idea of uh, the inheritance, uh, the allotted land that was given to each of the tribes and to each of the families within the tribes. There was a portion, there was an inheritance that was given to them, and it was a prized possession. So much so that there were periods of time throughout the course of the year, throughout the history of Israel, where God commanded that, that if a person had to sell a piece of their own land, that it would automatically revert back to their family so that they could keep it in their family name. Their portion, their inheritance, their portion of the land was precious to them. And he says, you know what my portion is in this life? It's your word. It's your truth. It's your commandments. It's your testimonies. Are we thus satisfied with the word of God? Is it a treasure to us? Do we respond that way? Well, why is he responding that way to God's word? I think it's precisely because in the word of God, we see the person of God. In the word of God, we see the perfections of God. He sees God and his word, and God is good. Again, this prayer response is a prayer of dependence, it's a prayer of delight, it's also a prayer of devotion. I mentioned this earlier. The word of God is his revelation of himself to humanity. Humanity has exposed his perfections, his character. The question becomes, when you're exposed to the word of God, is it to you simply a good piece of literature, a clever, a nice story or a myth or an ancient fable, some good moral teaching that's sometimes a little outdated, or is it to you the word of the true and living God? We'll talk more about that in a bit. But do you see in the word of God his person, his work, his will? Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Again, verse 12. I mentioned this one earlier. God is blessed. He is to be blessed. He is to be praised. He is praiseworthy. That's the point. The primary idea of blessedness in this psalm is the righteousness of God. God is blessed. He is worthy to be praised because he is righteous. He says, your righteousness is righteous forever and ever, and your law is true. God is blessed. He is praiseworthy because he is righteous. All of what God does is done in righteousness. Or what does righteousness mean? It means that he is upright. It means that what he does is done without fault, error, or stain of sin. 
God is right in all that he is and all that he does, and that is eternally true. You never have to wonder if God has ulterior motives, if he has false or harmful motives towards you. Everything that he does is done in righteousness. You know, the meaning of the word sincere comes from two Latin words meaning without wax. Some merchants would sell defective products, and in order to get those defective products across uh, the table to the person who's buying it, they would put wax into the cracks and crevices to kind of make it look a little bit better, a little smoother. And so merchants who were selling the real deal, the authentic stuff, would put a little sign over their products that said sincere, without wax. God is sincere. God is without wax. He's without blemish. He's without fault. He's without error. Everything that he does is done in righteousness. It is done uprightly. Jesus, the word of God, the son of God, the one who explains God according to John's gospel, came in the flesh and lived and walked among us. They call him the righteous one precisely because everything that he did was done in righteousness. He kept the law of God perfectly, so much so that in John chapter 8, when some of his detractors were arguing with him and warring with him, he said to them, without fault, without faltering at all, he says, which one of you accuses me of sin? And no one had a word to say. They could have taken that opportunity to point out all of his faults and all of his failures, but they had nothing. They had no words to say because Jesus is the righteous one. And he's imitating his father in heaven. If God is so sincere, if God himself is righteous, if there's no shadow of turning in him, if God is light and in him is no darkness at all, then we know that his law, his word, his precepts, his commandments, his promises are also eternally righteous and true. Verse 89, forever your word is fixed in the heavens. Verse 152, you founded your testimonies forever. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's word is fixed in the heavens. This speaks of his sovereignty, that his word is in the heavens, meaning it is above all. This also speaks of his integrity. What word is spoken in the heavens cannot be moved. It is fixed. It will happen. If God said it, you can count on it. If God said it, it is true. If God said it and you are attempting to live according to his word, according to his truth, you will never be put to shame. It doesn't matter how many people in the world try to shame you for following God's word, God's truth. You will never be put to shame because God said it and because he's good on his word and because his word is good and righteous and true. Knowing that God is righteous, again, helps us to respond well in trials. We touched on this earlier. Verse 75, I know that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God even in his affliction, even in his trial. I know that your word is true. I know that your way is true. So even though I'm going through this difficult situation, this difficult circumstance, I still trust you. Because you are good and you do good. Because every one of your words is true. He even says that verse 68, you are good and do good. Verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. Verse 156, great is your mercy, O Lord. This is a psalm of devotion. 
In the word of God, we see the person of God, we see his character, and we are reminded that he is good. We need to be reminded often of those truths. I wonder, again, do you avail yourself of those truths in the word of God? That leads us to our final section. Psalm 119 is a prayer of dependence, it's a prayer of delight, it's a prayer of devotion. Finally, it's a prayer of distinction. You cannot be exposed to the perfections of God for nothing. You cannot come into the presence of God with no effect. Moses was in the presence of God, was exposed to his perfections, got to speak with God face to face, so to speak, and his face literally shone from that. So much so that when he would go back down to speak with the sons of Israel, they begged him to put a veil over his face because his face was literally shining, reflecting the glory of God. You know, we read in Isaiah chapter 6 about the seraphim, and everyone wonders, what are these seraphim? Why are they called seraphim? Why are they burning ones? Well, I think it's clear. They're, they're flying around the throne of God day and night, proclaiming his glory. And because God is so glorious, and because his glory is shining and radiating off of him, and they're flying before his face day and night, proclaiming his glory, they're just absorbing that glory and reflecting it back. They are burning hot reflecting the glory of God. But what happens when we are exposed to the perfections of God? People will respond in one of two ways. They'll either be changed into his likeness and start to reflect his glory, or they'll melt away in judgment. Again, this is a prayer of distinction. The image of the psalmist in Psalm 119 is of one who has been so impressed by the word of God. He's been so humbled before the person of God that he pleads with God for help to know him better. He sees the inherent goodness of God. He sees, as we read in Psalm, read in Psalm 1 this morning, the blessedness of the one who delights in the law of God day and night. And he wants that. And he wants more of that. Earlier, I referred to the word of God as the gift that keeps on giving. As we read through Psalm 119, or what are some of the blessings of being exposed to the perfections of God in his word? How are our lives helped? How are our lives changed? We've already touched on a number of these already. I'm just going to go back through some of them and summarize them for you. And I would again encourage you to read Psalm 119 on your own. There's so much there that we cannot cover in one message. But here's just a sampling of some of the benefits, according to this psalm, of being exposed to the word of God. We are given life. Verse 24, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Now, this is life in the midst of trials. Again, the word of God revives our soul. That is, again, the picture of Psalm 1. When you see that tree planted by the streams of water, one of the things that he says in Psalm 1 is that its leaf does not wither. You think about that for a minute? Do you feel like you need that kind of strength when things are hard? He says that the leaf of this particular tree that's planted by streams of water does not wither. That's how we feel when we're in the midst of trials. We feel like we're kind of withering away, right? We're melting away because it's so difficult. Well, this psalm writer says that when we're exposed to the perfections of God, he gives us life. He strengthens us. He revives us so that we will not wither. We're given hope. Verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Verse 114, I like this one. You are my hiding place and my shield, for I hope in your word. That's verse 114. I've said this before, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. 
Perhaps this will happen. Perhaps it won't. I wish that I could do this. I wish that I could do that. It's not what we're talking about. Biblical hope is rooted in the rock-solid promise of God's word. Biblical hope is a sure thing. It is a certain thing. It's certain because of God's promise. We're given wisdom. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We quote that one often. God's word gives wisdom. Perhaps it doesn't speak to every circumstance of life, but it does give us wisdom so that we can make the right decisions when we're faced with various circumstances in life. We're given strength against sin. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Do you need strength to overcome sin? We've already talked about this before. You find it where? You find it in the word of God. Amen. We're given perspective about the wicked. He says in verse 136, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He says in verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. He says in verse 158, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. We don't often think about this. Yes, we are to love our neighbors and even those who do evil against us. But we are also to have a healthy sense of disgust when people disdain the word of God, when people reject the word of God. And part of the reason why that is healthy is because it helps us not to imitate them. Because sometimes they seem to prosper in their rejection of God and his word and his truth. And yet we know the truth. We know that judgment is coming. We'll talk about that in a second here. And so we have to remember that it is not right for people to reject God's word. It is not okay for people to reject the authority of God over them. It is not okay for people to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one whom God has sent for the salvation of humanity. He is the son whom God has chosen, the man whom God has chosen to save. And the only right response to that is faith because God said it. Because God sent him. It is wrong for people to reject God's word. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter how they feel about it. That is wrong. It is evil. It is wickedness. That's the right perspective. And additionally, I've already mentioned this. We're given perspective in trials. Again, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. That's verse 71. Contrast that with the judgment levied against the wicked. Again, this is a prayer of distinction. When we're exposed to his perfections, we will either be changed into his likeness or we'll melt away in judgment. The latter response is that of the wicked. There is no help for them. There is no hope for them. Again, the biblical distinction, the difference between the righteous and the wicked is faith. There are those who trust in the Lord and those who do not. There is a false caricature of Christianity that tries to focus attention on works. If you do enough good, then you're good. You're okay with God. You'll go to heaven. If you do too much bad stuff, you'll probably go to hell. But I'm sure God will be good and he'll, you know, he'll let you in anyway, right? They focus on that idea of works. But biblically, it only takes one sin to deserve God's judgment. You just have to break one part of the law and you're guilty. It's just like driving down this road. I think the speed limit is supposed to be 25. If you drive 26 miles per hour, technically you are breaking the speed limit, Right? I mean, we don't think about it that way. I, I usually don't think about it that way. But that is true. 
because there is a speed limit posted. So if you drive 26 miles per hour, you're going over the speed limit, right? And so you've broken the law. And so if you're given a ticket, you really have no recourse. You have, you have nothing to say because you've broken the law. Likewise, if you break one aspect of the law of God, you are guilty, period. That's it. So all you deserve is his judgment. But again, God is merciful. God is gracious. God is compassionate. And he shows that mercy and grace and compassion in his word, but the wicked reject his word, and so they don't see it. Verse 21, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. They wander away from his word. Verse 118, you spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. Verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked, for they don't seek your statutes. Again, biblically, the wicked are those who spurn the word of God. God gives his word so that we might know what his will is, so that we might know what is good and righteous and true, and they reject it. And they even persecute the people of God for keeping his word. And the word of God is clear here that God will act against those who spurn his word. The Lord will act in judgment against those who wander from his commandments. And I want to ask one more time, how have you responded to the word of God? How do you respond to the word of God? How have you responded over the past year to the word of God? How are you going to respond differently to the word of God next year? Do you respond as the wicked who reject his truth? Again, do you leave your Bible, sit on your shelf until the holidays or until you feel like you need a genie in a bottle to fix your problems and then you take it out, you rub it on the side and you ask God for something? Or do you truly see your need for him? Judgment is coming for those who spurn the word of God. I want you to see one more thing. It's an interesting feature in this psalm. Verse 126, it is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. I've already touched on this point before. I just want to read a couple more verses here. Verse 119, all of the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. In the Psalms, the people of God see the judgment of God upon sin in response, and they rejoice. They rejoice not because of the harm that comes from the wicked, not because of the harm that comes to the wicked, rather, but because the righteousness of God is vindicated. They see God being vindicated by his righteousness when he judges, and they believe and they think that is a good thing. And that's the way we should view it. The judgment of God is coming, and that is a good thing. We weep and we mourn for those who don't know Christ, who have rejected God's word, and we beg God to save them, to work in their hearts and their minds for their salvation. And yet we also know that it is good and it is right when God judges. Because he's righteous, and because he is good, and because he deserves to be obeyed. And they don't. In Psalm 119, is a long prayer response to the word of God. How do we respond to it? God, help me to persist in seeking the treasure of your word as it exposes humanity to perfections bringing both blessing and judgment to those who hear. The psalm writer's response is one of dependence, it's one of delight. 
It's one of devotion and it's one of distinction. As we approach the Christmas season, as we think about our traditions and gifts, as we think about what is perhaps the greatest gift of God that he's given to humanity, I'll ask you another question. How have you responded to the word of God made flesh? We've been discussing our response to the written word. In the mystery of our redemption, we're told in the Gospel of John, again, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has not only sent his written word, he's also sent the living word in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. We celebrate his incarnation, his birth in Bethlehem. We celebrate the coming of the word of God in the flesh during this Christmas season. And again, I want to ask you, how do you respond to the word of God made flesh? How have you responded to him? Do you see him as just a good man, a good moral teacher who at times, again, offends the political correctness of our day? Or do you see him as the gift of God? sent down to offer up his life as a sacrifice for our forgiveness and to give us the hope of eternal life. Scripture is clear. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Again, Jesus came not to stay as a baby in Bethlehem, but he came to live a righteous life and to die the death that we all deserve. And if you are having a difficult time responding to the word of God this morning, perhaps it's because the written word, perhaps it's because you haven't yet responded to the word of God made flesh. Because what Jesus does for us, because he is the savior of the world, is that he gives us new life. He gives us eternal life when we trust in him so that we may see the glory of God in his word, so that we may understand the benefits of God in his word. Don't miss the point of Christmas. We just sang not too long ago this line, Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon a tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Christmas is about God's plan of redemption. It's about God bringing about his plan of redemption and sending the gift of his son, the gift of the word of God made flesh. And it is by faith in the word of God made flesh that we can have the life that God promises for those who love him. Pray that God would help you to believe in the treasure of the word of God made flesh this Christmas season. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that all of your words are good and right and true. Thank you that your word is perfect, that it restores our soul. Thank you that your word enables us to hear and to know about Jesus, who is your son, who is the word of God made flesh. Thank you for him. Thank you for the life that he lived. Thank you for the death that he died. Thank you for the salvation that he gives us by faith in him. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this psalmist's response to your word. Help us to respond likewise. And for those who don't know you this morning, I pray that you'd help them to respond by faith to the word of God made flesh. In Christ's blessed name, amen.